Good morning. Let's pray. Father, you are the one that speaks the word, and so we ask you this morning for your mercy that you would come and speak to us. Lord, we need your word to act like a two-edged sword that cuts us apart and strips away what was to make us into new people. We need your word to come and act as a lamp to guide our feet this week so that we know which direction to turn in this world. We need your word to feed us, Lord, because without it, we're empty, hungry, and dying. And so we pray that you would speak to us today, give us ears to hear and eyes to see. We pray these things in the name of our Savior Jesus, who's finished the good work. We pray these things in his name. Amen. If you would, let's turn back to Luke 13. It's always difficult for me when you have the opportunity to teach just a single sermon, and so you're free to choose whatever you want. And that's much harder, in my mind, than teaching through a book, because then you're constrained by whatever's in front of you. And so I, uh, I prepared three sermons first, and then settled on Luke. And uh, in, in reading the book uh, on Luke 15 this month, and then listening to the sermon on Luke 18 last month, I've been reminded and convicted about what God calls us to as his people. And the Gospel of Luke is, uh, as you read through it, it, it's hard. Jesus says some things that are absolute, and we, we wrestle with them as American Christians. And so first what we need to do and what my goal is to take two of these stories within the context of Luke and, and try to get a grasp on what Luke is telling or what Jesus is telling through, through the words of Luke, uh, the Israelites that he's talking to. And within that context, then we can hear for ourselves what God demands of us. He demands us to be fully repentant, to come to him with nothing. And we were reminded of that last week in, in Luke 18. And to understand this book as a whole, you have, to, you have to take a step back and see how Jesus is approaching the nation. The temple is about to be destroyed. And when we come to the book of Acts, uh, I guess it's been a number of years since you went through Acts, but it, it's, a, it's a replay of the book of Joshua in which God's people go through now as 12 disciples and a host of witnesses, and they go through from city to city and they conquer the land, bringing it under subjection to God. But what that means is Jesus is preparing the way for a holy war in which the holy God comes and he runs through the land. And as in the book of Joshua, holy war means that every city that, that is under this ban Nothing can survive. No woman, no child, no brother, no sister, no cattle. And every piece of silver, gold, is reserved for God's temple. It all belongs to him. And so as Jesus speaks and he's talking to the people, he says to the rich young ruler, you have to give up everything. Well, that makes sense if God has left the temple 
And now Jesus is coming and he's reinitiating a new war, coming from the outside of the land through the wilderness, entering through Jericho once again. And he says, all of this belongs to God. It all must be destroyed because there's no one left. There's no one left that's righteous. And so Jesus' message as he walks through Israel first is prepare. Because the day of the Lord is at hand, the kingdom is near. And as he sends the disciples out in chapter 11, 72 disciples in Paris, he says, go, go from city to city and declare peace. And if they accept you, then say, peace, the kingdom of God is near. But if they reject you, shake the feet, your feet, the dust off your feet, and say to them, still, the kingdom of God is near. The message is the same. And so throughout this gospel, Jesus and Jesus with his disciples is preparing for what's coming a en route march by God through the land of Israel. And then all of the things Jesus say begins, begin to make sense. You can come with nothing because everything in this land is under the ban. There's no money that you can bring with you. In fact, you must enter childless, parentless, brotherless, sisterless, because none can survive. And so we're reminded as we begin that what it means for holy war. It doesn't mean that there are none who will be saved. So think through the book of Joshua. The first city is Jericho, and one is saved, Rahab. There's an invitation to her family, but they must take the invitation. They must repent, as Rahab repented, and so one is saved. And we're going to go back through that, but first I want to look at two stories, and they end two travel sections in Luke as Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem, towards the cross that brings the wrath of Yahweh in completion. We have these two stories, a story of a woman who has been bent over double for 18 years. So she can't stand up straight, she's, she's bent in half. And then we have the last, the last story of a man who saved in the book of Luke, in Zacchaeus, a small man, and he's welcomed into God's kingdom by Jesus himself. And so I want to look at these two stories first apart, and then there are some commonalities that we'll bring back to the beginning of the book of Luke and, and then look at it through the lens of Joshua to, uh, to bring back the message for what God wants for us. So turning back to Luke 13, Hyde read to us out of this passage, and the context in this this first story we're going to look at is overwhelmingly that the time is at hand. So it's a warning, repent. And we'll come to a slightly different message in Zacchaeus at the end of the travel section. But this first one, Jesus says, repent. And it's within, within this context that the cloud is coming, the storm is brewing. And so I've come to divide families. Three against two, two against three. Be ready. Settle your debts. Repent of your sins, because the kingdom is at hand. And so within that context, some are asking him here about the Galileans. Pilate had apparently killed some Galileans. And it says that, Jesus says, Do you suppose that these, whose blood Pilate mingled with their sacrifices, were greater sinners than other Galileans because they suffered this fate? Of course, the answer that Jesus is looking for is no. Unless you repent, you also likewise will perish. And he pairs that with the story of what about these other Judeans from Jerusalem upon which the, uh, the Tower of Siloam fell, 18 in total. The Tower of Siloam fell and crushed them. Do you suppose that they were greater sinners than, than other Judeans? 
Of course, the answer again is no. I tell you, unless you repent, you too will perish. Well, these two stories together, even before we get to the, the woman, tell us, tell us something. In each of those two stories, so the first one says Pilate mingled their blood with their sacrifices. They're bringing a sacrifice to God as they are put to death. In the second story, the Tower of Salome fell on 18 men. We don't know a lot about that tower, but the only other reference to Salome in the Bible is the Pool of Salome. It's a pool for washing. And so if you bring those two things together, these people too were coming to be pure. They were coming for purification, and the tower fell on them. And so the assumption is these men must be great sinners, because here they are, they're presenting their offering, they're, they're coming for purification, and they're put to death by very different means. Jesus' answer is no. You're all under such a curse. Jesus says that these men who are coming, and he's going to bring this to fruition through the parables that come in the rest of the book of Luke, they're coming not as the, the penitent tax gatherer that we heard about last year who cries out, mercy, mercy, but instead they're coming as the Pharisees do with a presentation of their own righteousness before God. And so he says, unless you repent, you too will likewise perish. Skipping over verses 6 to 9 for just a minute, this, this story, these two stories are coupled with a lady. He said, Behold, there was a woman who for 18 years had had a sickness caused by the Spirit, and she was bent over double and could not straighten up. And when Jesus saw her, he called over to her and he said, Woman, you're free from your sickness. And immediately she was made erect. There's not much to it, right? There's no repentance evident there. There's no story about how, God, how Jesus did it. It's just a statement. 18 years, she was bent over double, and then Jesus comes along and he says, You're free. And she stands straight up. And that's it. And Jesus, he, in explaining this, he said, This woman is a daughter of Abraham who's been bound by Satan for 18 years. Should she not be released from this bond today, the Sabbath day, the day of the Lord? And the answer is yes. These two stories are drawn together by the reference to 18. 18 men died under the weight of of the stones of the Tower of Siloam falling down and crushing them. And for 18 years, this woman who represents Israel has been bent over double. She cannot stand up straight. And so he's presenting them with a choice. The same choice he says in words, repent or you will perish because the kingdom of God is at hand. And so we don't see yet the repentance of this lady that comes to fruition through the book of Luke where we begin to see what repentance looks like. Instead, the focus here is on Jesus. Jesus has come to seek and save that which was lost. He's come to this lady, bent over double in bondage to Satan. Remember, he called these people earlier in the book a brood of vipers, children of the devil. She's been in bondage to Satan, and all he says is, you are free. And she stands up straight. Before we go anywhere with what God calls us to, we have to be reminded that this is his work. First and foremost, and we'll see this in, in the story of Zacchaeus too, he's the one that comes. He comes into his house. He's the one that calls. He's the one that, that brings release, the year of Jubilee, sabbatical freedom. He's the one that frees and makes us stand up straight. And it's a reminder that it's him. And that challenges us because it means that there can be no pride there can be no, no comparison, which is what the Pharisees do to the tax gatherers. There can be none of that 
Because Jesus is the one that brings salvation to this daughter of Abraham based on his own volition. He sets her free. And yet those 18 died under the weight of the Tower of Siloam. And so what do we do? Surrounding these two stories, or rather intermixed with them, is a parable, um, well, two sets of parables. So in verses 6 through 9 is the first parable. A certain man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it, and he didn't find any. And he said to the vine keeper, Behold, for three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. So this is a parable we know through the lens of other gospel writers, but it has a, a few different details here. There's a fig tree and a vineyard. It's not producing any fruit. That we know. It's a representation of Israel. Jesus curses the fig tree in the book of Matthew. He does it again in Luke because it has leaves, but it has no fruit. It bears all the symbols of righteousness, but it has no fruit. Well, this fig tree is producing no fruit, and we have this additional detail. The owner comes by and he says, cut it down. But the vine keeper argues for a stay of mercy. Three years, it's been fruitless. Give it one more year. I'm going to fertilize it. I'm going to plant. I'm going to dig around it. Give it one more year to bear fruit. And if not, bring the axe, cut it down. That, that detail is important. So when Israel entered the land, I remember we're, we're parallel to that. This begins outside in the wilderness with John the Baptist coming into the land of Israel. When Israel entered the land, God said to them, the fruit trees for the first three years, don't touch them. Don't eat the fruit off of them. And in the fourth year, again, don't eat the fruit off of them. But this year it belongs to the Lord. It's mine. It's holy to the Lord. So in their holy war, as they march through the land, they can't cut the fruit trees down. So in Leviticus 20, we have a command. When you make war, you shall not cut down the fruit trees. Are they man that you should make war against them? But instead, to purge the evil that was there, three years, don't eat the fruit. Let it fall to the ground. And in the fourth year, it's called holy to the Lord. And in the fifth year, you may eat it. It's yours. So here, for three years, this fig tree's been fruitless. Well, Israel's in the land. They've, they've conquered the land, and Israel now is Canaan. They're a fruit tree, but they're fruitless for three years. And so he says, one more year, the fourth year, which belongs to the Lord. Let's wait, fertilize it, and see if it produces fruit. And so it fits with the message of Luke, the kingdom of God is drawing near. The hand of Yahweh is nigh. You have time, but not much time. Repent. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so there's one more chance, one more year to bear fruit unto the Lord from his fig tree. On the other side of the story of the woman from Salome is another parable. Jesus said, What is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It's like a mustard seed which a man took and threw in his own garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of meal until it was all leavened. So again, we have a coupling of these two parables. Notice that 
this second set of parables is again about trees. Now it's a mustard tree. The kingdom of God is like a mustard tree. It's set in contrast to the fruitless fig tree. This mustard tree grows, and although it doesn't look like the stately cedar that you see the allusion to there in the quote out of Ezekiel 17, it's God's kingdom. And the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. It bears fruit for the world. The birds come to nest for protection and to eat because the fruit, the, the mustard tree is a fruit-bearing tree in the parable. But then juxtaposed against that is this final parable. To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven. A woman took and hid in three pecks of meal until it was all leavened. And so putting these two things together, we have a fig tree that's fruitless for three years and a lump of bread that's leavened, three pecks of of, of, of dough, three pecks of meal, leaven's hidden in it. And so you can't see anything. And so the message of Jesus here is it's been fruitless, but God is at work, right? So the fig tree is fruitless. It remains as yet in the fourth year to see what's going to happen. Just like in the kingdom of God, the leaven is hid in three pecks of meal and it's hidden. It's only going to be exposed in what's coming next. What's there? And so Coming next, Jesus is, is, is coming in death and in resurrection, coming as king, and the fig tree and the leaven will be revealed for what they are. And so hidden within the nation of Israel is a peck of leaven. Well, three pecks of meal with some leaven. I don't know how much leaven. And this is a common theme in Jesus' parables. Everybody hears, but it remains as yet to see what's going to happen. When... When the seeds grow up, then we'll see where the Word of God took root. And so we have all of this against the backdrop of this lady. Bent over double, and Jesus says, you've been in bondage for 18 years, just like the people of God were in bondage. They've been in bondage for 18 years before, twice in the book of Judges, but now you are set free. So what will you do with this freedom? So I'm going to stop there, and we'll, we'll come back to a few comments there, but I want you to flip to Luke chapter 19. And we're going to make some similar observations about the story of Zacchaeus. And then tie these two together. So in Luke chapter 19, I'm going to read... Read these 10 verses again, and then we'll, we'll make some comments. And he entered and was passing through Jericho, and behold, there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was the chief tax gatherer, and he was rich. And he was trying to see who Jesus was, but he was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. And he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, Hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down, and he received him gladly. And when they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I had defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek 
and to save that which was lost. We're coming to the end of the book of Luke with this story. This is the last story in which Jesus confronts an, an individual. And all of them up to this point have been healings. Jesus comes and he heals the lepers. He, uh, he takes away sins. He heals the paralytic, causes on him to rise up. He heals the blind man, Bartimaeus, in the story just before this. And in between all of those, he teaches through, through parables. And the story of Zacchaeus is, is kind of a summary of all that's gone before. We see in this parable the answer to many of the questions that uh, a reader or, or one of the disciples would have had if he, as he listened to Jesus walk and talk through the land. And we can see those just, just within the few details given to us here about Zacchaeus. And so just walking through these verses, Jesus entered and he was passing through Jericho. And every detail here is important, remember. So here Jesus is. He first healed the blind man Bartimaeus in Jericho. Is representative of, of the disciples who are blind. They can't see what's coming. They still can't understand that Jesus is called to the cross, but they have given up everything. They followed him. They left houses, lands, brothers, sisters, and so Jesus says to them just before this that you will be rewarded. They'll be rewarded with sight. You're going to have eyes to see. And so here in, in the story of Zacchaeus, we have a second story in Jericho, and to understand it, we have to place it against the backdrop of what Jericho is. Jericho is the city that is first defeated in the battle for the land of Canaan. The, the people go in, and we all know that story, right? Rahab, Rahab rescues the spies. She hides them in, in her roof in the flax. And then Israel marches around Jericho for seven days until the walls crumble in a pile of stone and rubble and just Rahab comes out through the scarlet thread. And so here, Jesus is entering again. At the very end of the gospel, he's entering into the land to go to Jerusalem. He's initiating what will happen through the rest of the book of Acts. And so in many ways, while this is the end of his travels, this is the beginning of what he's promised, of what he's calling everybody to look for. And so here Zacchaeus is, and there's a man, there's a man there in Jericho called Zacchaeus. And the name Zacchaeus means pure. Well, the problem is he's not pure. And so he represents the lawyers, the scribes, the Pharisees, the rulers, the Israelites, all of them. They bear the name pure. They bear the name sons of God, children of Abraham, but they're not pure. And we know that by the time we get to the next word. For Zacchaeus was the chief tax gatherer. And even worse than that, he was rich. So in the story of the Gospel of Luke, this means he's, he's in double jeopardy. Right? Not, not only does he fall to the wayside through the parables of Jesus when it comes to those who are sinners, right? Zacchaeus is a thief. We know that by the end of the story. We know that from all the other tax gatherers that have been saved through the Gospel of Luke. He's stolen from God's people. He's stolen from God himself. But, on the other side of the equation, he's rich. He's rich like the Pharisees. And so, we just, we just finished the story of the rich young ruler in which he came to Jesus and he said, 
I've followed every law since my youth, and he names them all, except for he forgot the law thou shalt not covet when he was naming them. And he says, what must I do to be saved? How can I enter into this kingdom that you're declaring? And Jesus says, give up everything, all of your possessions, and you're free to enter. And he went away sad because he loved money like the scribes and the Pharisees loved money. Zacchaeus was rich. And he was rich through stealing. To be rich by stealing, you have to be a lover of money because you've given up righteousness in exchange for silver and gold. So Zacchaeus, in many ways, is more like Achan than he is like Rahab in the story of Joshua. You remember Achan stole from the silver and gold that was under the ban. He took it and he hid it under his tent because he, he, he was greedy. And he ended up, too, just like Jericho, under a pile of stones because he was a thief, because he stole from God. Zacchaeus falls under that curse, too. And so either way you look, whether he's compared as the sinners that that uh, the Pharisees say you can't eat with him because he's a thief. Or whether he's compared to the Pharisees, he's like them because he's rich. He's a lover of money. Either way, he's out. He's a hopeless one. Remember, Jesus said, after he confronted the rich young ruler, he said, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter into the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And so we, here we have Zacchaeus. He's a rich thief. And the disciples responded to that and they said, who can be saved? Through the whole book of Luke, we've only seen the down and the outcast who have been saved. We've seen the, the lepers, the paralytic, the blind, the poor, the hopeless, all those whom the gospel in Isaiah, says Jesus will come to rescue. But then there's this question. If it's the third year of fruitlessness and there's one more year for repentance, can this man be saved? Can the, can the rich man, the outcast, the social leper, the one who's fallen under every ban, can he be saved? And Jesus' response is, what's impossible with men is impossible with God. And so that's what this story is about. Zacchaeus in Jericho is the one who will be rescued. And he was trying to see Jesus. He wanted to see who Jesus was. He's like Bartimaeus. He's blind, but his blindness comes because he's short. He can't see. He wants to see, but he can't see. He's trying to see who Jesus was. He was unable to because of the crowd. And this also is a condemnation by Jesus because the crowd is who gets in the way of people seeing who Jesus is. The nation itself is, is causing people to fail to see that the King of Glory is coming into their land. They alternately rejoice when Jesus rescues, but then sometimes they grumble, as in this story. The crowd grumbles, the Pharisees grumble, just like Israel in the wilderness, because they don't really want to see the salvation of God because it condemns. It condemns all those who listen to have to come in and plea for mercy on equal footing of nothingness. So he's unable to see because of the crowd, because he was small in stature. And so again, Luke adds this detail and it, it casts a hook back into chapter 18 where Jesus says, bring the children to me, stop pushing them away because only those who come like a child shall enter the kingdom of, of heaven. And here Zacchaeus is, he's like the woman bent over double, he's like a child because he's short. 
He can't see, he can't get in, he has no hope. He's nothing. So he runs on ahead and he climbs up into a sycamore tree. A sycamore tree is a type of fig tree. Uh, some of your translations may call it a mulberry tree, so that's what it's usually translated as in uh, Luke 17, when he says, those who have faith like the seed of a mustard seed will say to this mulberry tree, get up and cast yourself into the sea, and it, it will happen. So he climbs up into this tree, and the fact that it's a kind of fig tree, and sycamore trees aren't usually figs that people eat, it's a, it's a reminder of what Jesus is calling for back from chapter 13. He says, you're a fruitless fig tree. Bear fruit. And here is Zacchaeus stuck up in the tree like a piece of fruit or like the other parable. He's like a bird nesting in its branches. And so we're looking to see what's going to happen. Is this tree bearing fruit? Is it the tree that, that Jesus has said is coming, the mustard seed tree in which the birds of the air will nest in its branches? Is Zacchaeus the one. And Jesus comes to the place and he looked up in the tree and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And so although Zacchaeus is looking, he can't see, he climbs up in a tree, Jesus is the one that comes to Zacchaeus, just like to the woman bent over double. Jesus is the one, he's the hero of this story. And that's where we often go off track, right? We, we make ourselves the hero of the story. Jesus is the one that comes to Zacchaeus and he says, Get down, I'm coming to your house, the house of the impure, unclean, tax-gatherer sinner who's rejected by everybody. He's a leper, he's rich, he steals. Nobody wants him. I'm coming to your house. And he hurried and Zacchaeus received him gladly. And when they saw it, they all began to grumble. The grumbling began back in chapter 15. They grumbled and they said, this man eats in the house of sinners. And so Jesus told them the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the prodigal son. He condemned them as those who grumbled in the wilderness who didn't want God's salvation. They tasted it, but then they complained, this isn't what we signed up for. This isn't what we want. And so they're set off on one side as at least in this story, those who are going to die in the wilderness. But Jesus goes to Zacchaeus' house. He's gone in, verse 7, to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. And the result in verse 8, there's not a lot of explanation here. My translation says Zacchaeus stopped. But if you go look up that word, it's he stood up. So like like the woman bent over double, like the paralytic, like all the people that Jesus rescues, he says, get up. And here, too, Zacchaeus, the small man, Jesus has him stand up. He's raised up by our Lord, the one who gives salvation. And his response is, behold, Lord, half of my possessions I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I'll give back four times as much. And so, Zacchaeus' response, we can see repentance as a fruit, and we can see it visibly because it's worked out through the laws of restitution. And I'm not going to turn to the set of laws that govern this, but Zacchaeus is making a statement in how he responds to God's gift. He stands up, he receives Jesus gladly, and then he says, I'm going to give half of all my possessions to the poor, 
That's a gift. So it's, it's a gift of thanksgiving for what God has done. And I'm going to repay everybody from whom I've stolen and defrauded four times what I stole from them. You can imagine for a man like Zacchaeus, the implication is he'll have nothing left. He's coming in and he's following what Jesus said to the rich young ruler, give away everything. Well, Zacchaeus gives away all that he can and the rest he owes already. He owes it in restitution and so he makes that payment. But how he makes that payment is a proclamation by Zacchaeus of what Jesus has done because he says, I owe four times. Four times. If, if you think through the Old Testament, in Leviticus we find that if you defraud, if you lie, so that you come into possession of something, you steal from somebody, and you come back and voluntarily return to them, you owe them what you took plus 20%. So you owe them a debt of one-fifth increase. But Zacchaeus says, that doesn't apply to me. If you're caught in your sins and you still have the, that which you stole, you come back with double in Exodus chapter 22. You must repay double. And so you bring back what was stolen plus you take, you take the, you give the victim of the sin your intended theft. And so you repay back eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But Zacchaeus says, I'm going to pay back four times. And so in Exodus 22, four times is what was taken of the man who stole a sheep. And he consumed that sheep. It died in his possession. And so he's defrauded the man of both his possession he can't return it. It's, it's gone. He's defrauded the man. He's defrauded God because the sheep is a sacrificial animal. So he's stolen from both of them, and he owes four times as much. He's got to pay back with interest. And so Zacchaeus says, I'm that man. I didn't come back voluntarily. Instead, Jesus came to his house. Jesus stepped in his house and said, I'm calling you, Zacchaeus. And so it's, it's a proclamation both of his role in salvation and what he did. And so this is what repentance looks like. It, it looks like that now, too. We're called to repentance. It's just a cry for mercy. But upon receiving it, we give back everything. Everything taken. We, we owe God all. And so where we've stolen, we give back, and we should give back According to, according to the law which God has made. And that in and of itself is a witness of God's grace. So here's Zacchaeus, the man in the tree. He's showing what it means for a, a fig tree to bear fruit. Jesus comes and he calls forth and the fruit comes forth. And then Jesus says to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Today. Israel would say that salvation has been in our house for generations. But Jesus says, today salvation has come. This too, because he is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And so we have an allusion again to Ezekiel chapter 34, in which God says he's going to come back and he's going to turn over the shepherds who ate their sheep. And he's going to come back as the good shepherd to seek out and to save those which are lost. And so Jesus is saying, I'm doing that. I am the good shepherd of the parable who goes out and seeks the one who is lost. I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. The Son of Man is coming, and he's coming to bring 
everything he promised. The day of the Lord is at hand, and that means salvation for the repentant, and it means destruction for everybody else. But I want to look and tie these two together with what Jesus says. Today, salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. So remember the woman who has bent over double for 18 years, like Zacchaeus, she stands up straight. But at the end of that story too, she says, Jesus says of her, she is a daughter of Abraham. This man, Zacchaeus, is a son of Abraham. If you would turn to Luke chapter 3. So in Jesus' call in Luke, he's going out to seek and to save the lost children of Abraham. And that's how the book begins with John the Baptist. He's talking about this. What about the children of Abraham? And we know, we know from the story of Lazarus in the, in the middle of the, the gospel, he calls on, he calls on, on his, his riches in Abraham. He says... Uh, I'm a child of Abraham, but he ends up in, in Satan's house as a child of Satan. And so we can see how Jesus is calling his people here from the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. And so I want to read, we'll start in verse 1. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene. And the high, priest, and the high priesthood of Anaphis, Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. Even there, there's a contrast. You list all of these kings, all of the, the people in charge, the high priest, the king, and yet the word of God comes to John. And it comes to John in the wilderness. And he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Remember, this comes from, what, what he's going to say comes from Isaiah 40. He says, call out to her. Call out to Israel that she'll receive double in place of all of her sins. The, call out the voices, the one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every ravine, every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough road shall become a plain, and all flesh together will see the salvation of God. What Isaiah is calling out to the people is there's a great leveling coming. Every mountain will be brought low, every valley will be lifted up so that the land is a plain, so that it's flat. And God will come in his glory and walk through it. And the rugged terrain will, will be made smooth as an entryway for the Lord of hosts. And so it's both a promise and a warning. And that's what Jesus, that's what Jesus does. He does it first through John the Baptist. And then as he speaks parables to the sinners, to those who proclaim righteousness, the mountains are brought down. The valleys are lifted up. And every man comes before God like that penitent tax gatherer crying out, have mercy on me. All is a plain before the Lord of hosts as he comes in glory. And so what comes after that in Isaiah 40 is, it says, call out. What shall I call out? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. 
And what do you say? Our God reigns. Because the king is coming, and this is what must take place. But surrounding this are the crowds. And in the crowds are the, the Pharisees and the scribes. And so John says in verse 7, to the multitudes who are going to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. As John would say, you're children of the devil. Who warned you? Who called you to be here? Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bring fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. And also the ax is ready, laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so we have two statements that are made. It says, you call yourself children of Abraham, but I can raise up from stones. God will raise up from stones, these stones, children of Abraham. And so watch out because he demands fruit in keeping with repentance, that you be a tree that produces good fruit or you will be cut down. And so we see those two themes woven around these stories. Two children of Abraham are called by God. John says, I say to you, God is able to raise up for Abraham from, to raise up children from these stones for Abraham. Well, what, what does he mean? Frequently, if you just pass over this, I, we, we, get, we get most of the point in that God, God can take, he can take stony-hearted people, he can raise up anybody as an adopted son to call them into the fathership of Abraham, to bring them into the covenant people of God. But there's more than that here because John says... These stones, I can, God can raise up from these stones. To understand what that means, we have to look at where he is. John tells us that he's baptizing in Bethany beyond the Jordan. Matthew tells us that the people from Jerusalem are coming out to him. And so here he is, he's in the wilderness at the Jordan River outside of Jerusalem on the way into Jericho. It's where the nation of Israel stopped. Where God said, all right, I want the Ark of the Covenant lifted up. Everybody, you got to keep away by 2,000, um, 3,000 feet. 3,000 feet away from this Ark. And the Ark's going to go and they step into the water and God pulls up the water in heaps. And the Ark of the Covenant with the priests carrying it go and stand in the middle. And it must be a huge section where the heaps are stood up because the nation of Israel in entirety must cross across the Jordan River on dry ground, separated from the Ark of God by 3,000 feet in all directions. And so it's here that, that John says, God can raise up from these stones children of Abraham. That's why I had Hyde read Joshua chapter 4. The waters pulled up in heaps on either side as they cross over the Jordan River. But God has a specific command for Joshua as he calls them across this river. He says, all right, everybody's across now. I want 12 men from every tribe. You're going to take stones and you're going to take 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan River, and I want you to take them, and I want you to bring them across the bank into Gilgal, where, where, where Israel made camp. And you're going to make there a 12-stone memorial. 
And whenever you pass by that memorial, your children are going to ask you, well, what does this mean? And you're going to say, this is a sign and a memorial that God caused us to walk over on dry land. And so your children will know that God is mighty, and they will learn to fear forever the God who caused Israel to cross over. In the middle of that section, however, God tells Joshua, I also want you to take 12 stones. He doesn't quite say from where, and I want you to pile them up in the middle where the Ark of the Covenant stood. And so there's two stacks of 12 stones in the book of Joshua. One is, is, is put on the banks at Gilgal, and the other stack of 12 stones is put in the middle of the Jordan River. And so here's John. He's preaching to the people in the wilderness saying, Come, you must bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. Come and repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And they come and he said, Who warned you, you children of Satan? Who warned you, you brood of vipers, to flee from the wrath to come? If God wants... If God wants to, he can raise up from these stones. He's sitting at the Jordan River. There's 12 stones that have been buried under the water of the Jordan River for centuries. He says, God can raise up from these stones, children of Abraham. Well, what does that mean? John is calling people, and he's saying, repent, be baptized. Come down into the Jordan River and God will call you to be his children. He says he can raise up children from these stones. That, that's a word that Jesus uses in his healings. He uses it in the stories we looked at today. The woman bent over double is caused to made stand up erect straight. She's raised up. Zacchaeus, who's short, he's like a child. He stands up. He's raised up. These these. This man and this woman are called the daughter and the son of Abraham. The woman who's in bondage to Satan, the man who's in bondage to greed, are rescued. Salvation came to their house, and today those two are called children of Abraham, the daughter and the son, covenant members because of the grace of God. I think there's more. If you, if you just sit and meditate on what's going on here, and think about the book of Joshua and how God, how, how God walks across the land through the nation of Israel. The story of the stones in the book of Joshua keeps on going. And so we, we see that with Jesus. It doesn't stop at just the stones in the river, which were a memorial to God, to, and, and the stones on the bank, which were a memorial to call the children to remember who God is. But instead, all throughout the land... There's piles of stones. So Jericho becomes a pile of stones when the walls fall down. And a couple chapters later, there's another pile of stones heaped up on, on Achan and his family. There's a pile of stones. Remember who God is. And then after that, there's a pile of stones on the five kings who come and attack the Gibeonites. God dropped stones like hailstones from the heavens, and he crushed the people, and the five kings were put into the mouth of a cave, and the stones were rolled over it. And then after that, there's another set of stones that's brought in the end of that chapter in Joshua chapter 8. They erect a set of stones in Shechem between Mount Ebal and Mount Gezerim. And the people hear the words of the Lord, half on each mountain, which says all the words of God were read there. And on the stones were written the law. 
the covenant that God made with the people. And he said, here, here are the covenant curses, here are the covenant blessings that you heard outside the land, but hear them again, and they're written on the face of the land on stones. And John says, from these stones, God can raise up children of Abraham. And the story keeps going. There's heaps of stones everywhere that, that Israel goes as they mount this holy war, and cities are, cities are falling one after another. In the end of the book, there's a final stone, again planted in Shechem, and there's a stone of witness. It's a stone of witness against the people in which they said, we will obey all that we've heard. This is the stone that represents the covenant we have with God. And it's that witness which is now coming back to the people of Israel. And Jesus is coming and saying, repent. Because the stones cry out at the book, end of the book of Luke. You shut these people up, but the stones are going to cry out because they've seen what you did, how you brought desecration to the house of God. They've seen that you use God's house as a den of robbers and thieves. You come into it and you say, safety, safety, because, or as they said in Jeremiah, the temple, the temple. You cry out, here's a place of, of safety where God will give us refuge and then go out and steal again. And Jesus comes and he says, no, the stones cry out against you, but God will raise up from these stones. And so it can mean both God raise up from a, a stony, hard-hearted people as he does with Zacchaeus, as he does with many others in the gospel, but it also means that God is bringing his word to bear. And that word comes to bear and to bring fruit on the life of those that he calls. It brings us to the point of repentance so that the stones, the stones that remind us of who God is, they remind us that God is the mighty, everlasting one, the one who brings us out. He's the one that calls us and gives us mercy. So what does that do for us? It means that when we remember that, when the children come and they say, what do these stones mean? When we come and we come around the table and say, what does this mean? It means that God rescued us, that we came and we're sinners and we have nothing to stand on and we bring nothing with us. And it's a reminder and that reminder protects us. It protects us as God's children from falling into the trap of self-justification, of taking the things that God gave for good and turning them into wickedness and turning them into, into uh, laws and bars that, that keep out the sinners and protect ourselves. So coupled with that, he says, this is how you must come. You come and God brings mercy he raises up on the stones children for Abraham. And when he does that, he brings and he requires fruits of repentance. So we talked about the tree in Luke 13, and again the fig tree in Luke 19. The call is that children, children of God, repent. And that looks like Zacchaeus in which God strips away his sin, he still has to make restitution. But in the end, salvation comes to this house. And the tree blossoms forth and it produces fruit. And the warning at the beginning is the ax is already laid at the root of the tree. It's the third year, there's no fruit, there's one more year. And the fruit of the fourth year belongs to God. The holy war is coming. Fruit trees will be protected Fruit trees like Rahab, fruit trees like Zacchaeus, 
like the woman bent over double, that are on the tree of Israel that produces fruit, they will not be chopped down, but all else will fall down in the presence of the Lord of hosts. If you would, let's pray. Father, I know for myself, it's easy, it's easy to stand on the back of years of faith and to justify sin, to excuse it, ignore it, diminish it. It's easy to be outraged against those who are morally bankrupt. It's easy to, to grab the logs that are specks in others' eyes and to build myself up before you. Pray that you would protect us from that, Lord. Not that we would become self-flagellant people who are constantly looking for sins that don't exist, but help us to be honest and laid bare before you. Lord, we pray that we as your people would come in humility, full of thanks and praise, because you are the one that saves. You're the one that has lifted us up. We come as children with nothing, and yet you've raised us up to be called children of God, given us a, a place of privilege in your house, to be raised up to stand upright in your presence, to sing your praise. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to do that with hearts full of thanks, that we would give glory to you, not as the Pharisee who thanked you for not being like all those around him, but knowing that you have lifted us up from death and given us life. You are the good God who's given us all good things, and Lord, we want to look like you, to respond to the world with, with what's right, using your word and righteousness to, to divide and conquer for the sake of your glory and your kingdom. And so we pray that you would do that in us today. Pray these things in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.